Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number 35. Welcome to the Wet Podcast. This is Eric Marshall. I am your host, as I am every week at the Wet Podcast, writing, education, and technology. Today we have an interview. I have Nick Schlegel, a good friend of mine, on. Uh, he actually came over to my place and we did the interview in my living room. Uh, Nick has a new book out that he's going to talk about um, that he published academically. And he walks us through the process from proposal to acceptance to writing to editing all through the publishing process of a, of a traditional academic press. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. It's well worth the listen. It's a, it's a long interview. Uh, so I will keep this section quite short, but, um, at the, at the end of the interview, we do end up talking a lot about, um, academics in general, the academic job market, teaching, um, having a teaching and writing balance and, uh, and things like that. So we do broaden out towards the, uh, towards the end of the podcast. You can find show notes for this at ericamarshall.net slash wet. That's Eric with a K, Marshall with two L's dot net slash wet, W-E-T. This is episode number 35 with Nicholas Schlegel. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at eMarsh. I always appreciate reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. And let's get into the interview. Well, welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number 35. Today I have Nicholas Schlegel with me. Glad to be here, Eric. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. Uh, we're going to talk about academic publishing today uh, because Nick has recently published a book that just came out last week. Uh, yeah, last yeah. week. We're recording on the 1st of July of 2015. just came out last week. Um, it's called Sex, Sadism, Spain, and Cinema, the Spanish horror film, which makes me wish I had a, a filter on my mic right now <laughs> for all those S's. But um, yeah, Sex, Sadism, Spain, and Cinema, the Spanish horror film with Roman and Littlefield. Uh, and so he just went through the whole process of publishing a, an, an academic tome. And we're going to talk about the process and other things. So um, once again, welcome. Well, thank you, Eric. It's glad to. I'm really glad to be here and glad to talk about the book and share my kind of collective experience with publishing a book. Like you, we've we've both contributed chapters to anthologies and edited volumes, mm -hmm. which is you know considerably less of an investment. You you're, yeah. you're you know you're not you're not really charting the uh, uh, intellectual course of the book that's already been established. You're just sort of like discussing the topic and tailoring it to something, and there's you know you're just meeting a word quota, and that's about it, you know. And uh, but obviously a book, <laughs> it's big difference. Big yeah. difference, yeah. I mean, yeah. you are you're really navigating not not just that little like uh, um, atoll or something. You've got the whole globe in front of you, and it's it's very challenging. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. The idea that you know we've done articles, and those those take a lot of time, mm -hmm. and they're a lot of effort, but usually tailoring them to a particular editorial purpose for an anthology or a journal or whatever it is. And they're usually on one topic. And, you know, there's, I'm not going to say there's a formula, but there's, you yeah. know, there's kind of a formula. Um, and I always thought of a book as just a longer version of that, but that's not the case, is it? No, it's, um, 
Oh, God, no. It, uh, the, because with, with, um, with the book, excuse me, with the, an edited volume, you're, you, know, you, you write the chapter, you finish it, you're done with it. You know, it, it goes out to get peer-reviewed, you get some comments back, you incorporate the ones that are reasonable, <laughs> the <laughs> ones that you're willing to do. And in fact, I have two more edited volume pieces coming out this year, you know. Um, and, you know, like that's, that's basically a, a, a very done deal sort of thing. It's completely out of your hands after that. With a book, yeah, I mean, the, the obligation starts, you know, from the very first minute that you're, you're approaching the press. And then, um, yeah, you have to, I mean, you're responsible for everything. Nothing is really taken out of your hands. Um, and with a chapter, you sort of just a little gun for hire. I mean, with the book, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're the you're the syndicate. <laughs> you're in charge of everything. So, yeah, I feel like with an article, you're just making sure it's good enough in a way. Um, you know, and make sure it fits whatever the purpose of the uh, of the anthology is. In fact, you just uh, also submitted something to an anthology just recently as well. Right, that's one of the pieces I was mentioning. I've got a couple more edited volumes coming out. And that kind of sucked in, not, I mean, it sucked only in the sense that, and my, my editors were fully aware of this, uh, uh, it sucked because I had finished, just finished the book and immediately had another, you know, uh, chapter, I had a chapter that was due and there was just very little gas left in the tank, as yeah. one can imagine. I mean, you've just sort of like birthed this child uh, and and then you're asked to you know do it all over again on a smaller scale, but I mean intellectually, um, I, di- I didn't really have a whole lot. Fortunately, it was in my field, it was in my area. Uh, I knew the editors, and um, it's all it was also in a topic that I might be pursuing for another book. So uh, once I got into it, it it started to roll, and my editors were incredibly gracious and and, and patient with me, and gave me some extra time uh, to <laughs> to finish nice. it up. And and as you you know, because I mean you 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 read portions of it mm-hmm. just to make sure everything was good. Because at a certain point, after you finish a large a book and you're asked to to continue to write something, you're like I I don't know what I'm writing. <laughs> I'm it's just words right now because because yeah. you've kind of you're, you're exhausted. You're yeah. really you've finished the marathon. Yeah, it's, it's it's very much different from other types of writing, too. Um, full disclosure, Nick and I have known each other. We've been good friends for over a decade now, I think, right? Um, this is the first uh, episode of this podcast that we're doing in person. We're actually sitting in my living room right now together, uh, sharing the same microphone. And um, so this is kind of uncharted territory for the wet podcast in a way. And uh, and we also co-host another podcast, That's a Wrap, which I've talked about. So we, a little full disclosure there, but... Um, you know, let's say uh, you're, you're writing a an article, and you're talking. I mean, how, how long is the article these days? Eight thousand, ten thousand? I don't know if um, that. Well, that's a good question. Mine was close to eight. Okay. And I and I wanted to write more actually toward, okay. towards the end. You know? Okay. Yeah. So I guess it's between um, five and seven is what they're looking for. Okay. And was I think. Yeah, and and that's not like on the one hand, that's not a lot of writing in a way because like as far as like if you're writing fiction, um, uh, you know, I, I'll I'll I can pump I'll pump out five to seven thousand words by today's uh, sure. today's Wednesday by by you know by the weekend, you know, yeah maybe, but you know you can I can pump out five to seven thousand words and edit them and get them fairly polished in a pretty short amount of time, but for an academic article. 
it, it's it's a grueling process because you have to you have to consider the scope. You're you're laying out the argument. You're laying out what came before the previous um, literature on the on the on the uh, issue that you're talking about. You're making sure that you have an original argument. You're doing very close analysis. You're looking at outside texts, right? So five to seven thousand actually takes quite a bit longer for uh, academic writing. Yeah, right. and 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 not only that, but then there's also, I mean, in addition to everything you said, there's there's the two. Two things of providing history, like well, you mentioned history, but providing history for the non-specialist, mm-hmm. so that you're not using anything like you, you just that you're, you know, which of course we're all taught in undergraduate and graduate school, never assume familiarity, but at this level, uh, you have to do a little, you have to do at least end notes or something, uh, and, and then of course there's, uh, yeah, I mean, because if you're mentioning something and you're assuming any sort of knowledge on your readership, then get called out for that, and of course there's the whole intersubjectivity aspect of it. This will go, go out for peer review. I think this piece is going to be with Indiana University Press, so I definitely imagine there's going to be some some strong peer reviews coming back in a, in a while, um, and um, and that's fine. You know, I, I always welcome peer reviews because, in my experience, they they help the piece. Every now and then, you get a an errant suggestion that you you just feel is invalid. You know, but like I think ninety percent of the time, they're good. They just strengthen your piece. Yeah, and speaking of. Uh, assuming knowledge, can you explain the peer review process? Well, uh, yeah, the peer, <laughs> the peer review process is just yeah, it, it deals with that object, that question of sub, inner, inner subjectivity, which is um, whether it's an, a medical journal or a law review or a philosophical text. Um, it's going out to your peers who read it anonymously and then provide feedback uh, to the editor or the author. And to make sure that basically your scholarship is um, informed, accurate, uh, measures appropriately outward across the body of scholars in your field, and that no one's saying, you're crazy, you're high, what are you talking about, you know? So there's just this measure of does it does it stack up among your peers as being credible, and is it is it adding something to the body of scholarship? Uh, are your are your quote unquote opinions hmm. uh, or your assertions valid? And I know that sounds weird to say. Well, you know who's who has the right to say, but sometimes people will say things that collectively a group of peer reviewers might say. I think they're wrong. I think they're mistaken. They should reevaluate their thinking. Right, right, and so, and it's um, in the social sciences and in, in, in the I guess hard sciences, it's a little different. It's the same process in a way, but in the humanities, it's different because you are making assertions and you're making arguments. And the uh, the notion of a peer can be subjective as well. Who are your peers? But basically, the the ideal is that your your uh, paper will get sent to um, usually two or three uh, other scholars in the field who are in the same. Um, discipline more or less who know the literature and you know know what's out there and and know whether you're making an original and and kind of um like you said valid i guess argument and you're anonymous to them and they're anonymous to you it's anonymous both ways so that uh, when you get the feedback back it's just reviewer number one reviewer number two and when they get the the paper it's there's no name on it so it's no it's completely anonymous on on that level so um some people might not be aware that's after you've done all this grueling work, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's it, it you know in at its best, it's a really good process um, for weeding out you know kind of 
things that are completely off the wall or whatever. But you know, on the other hand, it, it kind of it, it risks homogenizing a field where you know you have to fit within a very narrow kind of set of parameters in order to fulfill um, you know whatever the, the the peers think. So it goes it goes both ways. Um, for the book. Um, so your book is on it's on Spanish cinema in the uh, in the Franco era. Right. Um, I know this because I've read a lot of it, <laughs> um, and um, and I also know from your writing that you you have this gift of being able to write in a way that's ac- rigorously academic but also accessible. So I think that anybody could pick up your book and learn something from it. You don't have to be entrenched in the academic world whatsoever. I think to get something out of your book, um, which I think led you to a couple of decisions that you had to make because um, this is a revision of your dissertation. Sure. Um, so you already had a text from which to work, um, but then how did you go about choosing a publisher? Well, that, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, and, and I have to predicate this on the fact uh, that, well, by stating that at, when I was courting a publisher, I was pursuing academia as a career still. That factored in a little bit to my decisions, but not much. I, 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 only, I sent it really to just a few presses, and I, I aimed for my dream press, which was Scarecrow, uh, which is Roman and Littlefield. Um, I mean, that's an imprint of Roman and Littlefield. And, and Roman has many academic presses in the, under their umbrella, as it is. Um, many. And I sent one to Columbia UP, Columbia University Press. Columbia because um, it was right up my field in terms of the types of stuff that they publish. Uh, so I heard back um, almost immediately from Columbia, uh, the, the senior editor there in charge of these acquisitions in this area. She loved the project. Uh, loved the idea. Didn't think it would. It was you know for their niche it was going to work. They didn't yeah. know that it, they thought it was too niche for them to really substantially make any money off of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I, I'm not going to say that was a relief, but in a, in a sense it kind of was because it's not really mm-hmm. what I wanted to do all along. Right. I had gathered a tremendous amount of uh, ephemera related to uh, my subject. You know, I had I'd I'd gone to Spain. I had interviewed directors and journalists that worked under the Franco era, the directors of these films, uh, historians um, in Madrid, and, uh, and had done research at the Spanish Filmoteca, which is part of the Ministry of Culture in Madrid. So it's, a, it's an apparatus of the Spanish government. And I had I'd gone down into the archives and you know gotten my hands dirty and you know I mean the result the result of a lot of that hard work is right on the cover of the book because that image on the cover of the book was uh, uh, you know an eight by ten that was scanned onto a disc among many others um, that I had paid for at the Ministry of Culture to use with permission and Columbia UP that's not their thing you know like that's going to be a lot of text with a few images spursed throughout but I'm dealing with the a subject matter that's pretty alien to a lot of people, yeah, and sure. I'm and I'm and I'm going into detail on these texts, and I'm doing you know a lot of textual analysis, and a lot of it deals with aesthetics, and I love the idea of being able to illustrate that fairly generously. And so the the other press I applied to was Scarecrow. I had already published with them in 2009 in an edited volume, um, so I had a little bit of a relationship with them. And they were like my dream press because they're academic and I know people who've gotten tenure uh, with, with Scarecrow or I should say Roman pieces. Uh, my friend Tony Bouchard at, at uh, um, uh, University of uh, Nebraska-Lincoln just got tenure with his Scarecrow, or I should say Roman, publication. So I knew that academically it was, it was fine, but it also just suited my, my vision for what the book was going to be. 
So after Columbia, UP said no. Uh, I remember I was driving home um, from work, and uh, I was at a red light, and I brought my phone up and sort of just, you know, pulled down on the mail app in, in, in the iPhone, and it and it and it uh, and it came up from Stephen Ryan, who's my editor, uh, senior editor at Roman. And I was like, oh, this is it. So I pulled over into a Starbucks and uh, I was like, okay. And I read it and it said, you know, yeah, this is a great fit. We'd love to do it. Uh, we'll be sending you a contract and so on. And I was just so happy. This was in the fall of 2013. So elated. I called my friend Ted immediately uh, and told, told Ted about it. And uh, he was thrilled. I went in and I remember I bought a pumpkin spice latte to, ce- to celebrate <laughs> Wow! because um, I was either that or go buy some drinks and I had a 45 minute drive rather an hour drive and I was just like no nah, I just get the pumpkin spice latte <laughs> and, and um, so that's how I wound up with, with uh, Scarecrow um, but yeah it's, again I, it's Roman and Littlefield is the and I'll be glad to tell you more about the process with them you know yeah. and, and, and but that's sort of how I arrived there yeah. Okay. That's that's great because I, I, the choice of publisher is really important uh, for those who are not in academia, because a university press um, is usually the expected, I guess, avenue to go to get tenure to get a job, um, and even within that, there are hierarchies of different university presses, and it, it's it's really confusing and strange. But you know, the 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 purpose of publishing a book in academia, an academic book most of the time is not to make money and not to um, uh, do some of the other traditional things that you write a book for. It's, it's to gain attention either to get tenure or these days to get a job. It's, it, oh, that's you, uh, thing we about. Yeah, well, yeah, we can talk about that for sure because the, uh, you know, the idea is that you get, you know, if, if you're applying for jobs in a very, very tight academic market, which it has been for over a decade now at least, and certainly is in the last five years, um, a book looks good. And even with a book, you're not guaranteed an interview. So, you know, you had to think about these things as you're choosing presses in a way. And it sounds like you picked a press that's recognized by academics that would let you do what you wanted to do with the book, especially with illustrations and and things like that, which is um, a good way to split the difference. It was a perfect uh, meshing. And and they were were all along my first choice. So I couldn't have been more happy. Yeah, I know that. I was, at the time, I was working at a a university where I was um, brought in to be the internal candidate. And um, I, I wound up uh, being obviously I was encouraged to to um, get a book under contract. It would uh, you know obviously sure up some odds and things like that because none of the other candidates probably were going to have a book under contract. Mm-hmm. Because in a sense, having a book under contract to land an interview is overkill. Yeah, you know, like you're almost shooting your wad in the mm-hmm. sense in that like you're 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 burning your book just to get the interview when your book really should be to get you tenure. But nonetheless, um, you know, I, I was, you know, completely gung ho and feeling extraordinarily confident about things. And when it's come to my career, I've always been a hundred percent where other things in my life, you know, we can, we can discuss where I may fall on the meter of, of where, how much I tried, but with my career, it's always been a hundred percent. And so I, I, I pushed for it, and so in the fall of 13 is when I applied uh, for a couple of uh, proposals. And of course, writing a proposal in itself is an art form, too. Um, you download typically templates from whatever the university press or press is, 
and then they ask you to do particular things. And um, it's a question of how well you address their questions and how much. You, so I decided to sort of like create my own template for it. And that template, I, I you know showed it to a couple of people, and they were like, thought it was fabulous. And so I created my own template, and yeah, and at Columbia, at Columbia, they were quite happy with it too. Obviously, they just didn't take a chance on the subject matter. Um, and so that was fall of thirteen. Uh, that's the timeline for okay. for so uh, less than two years ago. So fall of thirteen, and then when did you get the email? Uh, I'd say two week within two weeks after I'd sent it. So while oh. Columbia went was quick, probably like two three days, because she was she was she was a rejection. So it's very easy to. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, Roman took about two weeks, and I would say it was well pumpkin spice latte. It was October. I remember okay. it was October. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little surprised at how quick how quickly they they responded there's only two weeks so it was fall of 13 and then you had contracts to sign and then you had a certain amount of time to to write and submit the entire book correct and how long did that take uh it was supposed to be delivered uh december of uh 14 they gave me a year to deliver it but of course i had put in in my um you have to tell them when you're going to deliver it in your in your proposal and i had told them based upon my teaching load because I was coming up with a semester, I had a four four, <laughs> and uh, which was plen- plenty plenty busy. I mean, a four four teaching load is you're teaching four classes in the fall, four classes in the winter, and I was under uh, I was applying, I was working at an institution where I was on an internal, I was the internal candidate to get the job, which incidentally I didn't even wind up interviewing for it. So I mean, there you go. <laughs> There's no guarantees whatsoever even when you're brought in to be the internal candidate which would likely subsume at least an interview you know that didn't happen so i've since left that university and and as i said i've been trying i'm I'm actually uh, actively trying to leave academia altogether now i specified in the contract uh that i it would take me a year because i knew i had i'd have some summer months to vote to it and that's exactly what happened um i didn't really touch it for several months and then I was teaching in the spring. But then when summer rolled around and I was looking at some unemployment, I knew that, uh, that I could attack. And that's exactly what I did. So in uh, July of last year through December, I attacked full, full on and um, did, still didn't finish it. I, e- I emailed uh, my editor when, the, when, when it was due and asked for an extension until after the holidays. And my friends who are authors said, that's going to be a piece of cake because anything, any manuscripts that are going to be brought in in December are just going to sit in an inbox because publishers are going to be going, they're going to be in like, you know, Christmas party, holiday party yeah. mode in December. And but yeah, it's sort of like, you know, the automotive industry is going to put everything to yeah. bed and come back yeah. in January. So my editor, who's just a great guy yeah, altogether, just said, yeah, not a problem. And, and then uh, when January rolled around, I still quite, I mean, I still was going to need a, f- uh, it wasn't just going to be like, I'll get this to you uh, right away. I needed another week or two. So I kind of got everything to him in the middle of January. And of course, the funny thing was, as a first time author with, on, on a book, I thought I, you know, I mean, there's a lot you've got. <laughs> you deliver a lot, okay, for the listeners out there who are wondering. I mean, you deliver a lot. And um, in the case of working with Roman, Roman wants a lot from you. They, Roman works twice as fast as any traditional university press. 
because they they expect to have basically a very solid manuscript that has been proofread. They'll assign professional proofreader to it. But they want a clean manuscript. They want all the rights and permissions for anything you're using in terms of uh, interviews or in terms of image release. Uh, they want all that taken care of. Um, you you basically you know I mean you've got you you, you have to deliver everything and uh, and it has to be clean. And I delivered everything, but I made some mistakes in formatting and just in formatting in terms of my end notes. In terms of, and they give you a style guide, and it's a very specific style guide. It's not like it's not just purely MLA or Chicago. And of course, Roman wants Chicago. It's Chicago with a couple of little tweaks. So you have to read that very carefully. And I, I made some mistakes, and I'll never forget when I got the email back from my editor a couple of days after I sent the whole, you know, everything, all the images, all in grayscale. You know, I had only been dealing with very high res images, and I had converted them to grayscale. Um, the forewords that I had secured, I had had an actor who had, you know, who'd acted in a lot of these films write a forward for me. I had had a, a dear friend and total authority on the subject in Madrid write a forward, so I had two forewords. And of course, you had to get you had to get releases for all these things, and you're dealing with Europe, so I mean that's a that's a headache too because there has to be. But I'll never forget I got the email that said, "I know you thought you submitted your manuscript, but there's a." couple of problems that need to be addressed so i got on the phone with my editor and he um he said yeah these are no big deals you, know, you just got to change this stuff and you know i'm going to be out of town for the next two weeks why don't you just get it to me in two weeks which i did and so and two weeks later i gave everything to him everything was perfect and then we were off to the races so so one month later basically it was okay. due in december i gave it to him in the uh, sort of the end of january okay so january of 15 so the process started fall of 13 you wrote through all of 2014 turned into manuscript the end of January, yep. with those revisions for endnotes and oh god, it sounds like a nightmare. Um, and the indexing, right? Indexing came later. Indexing came later. Okay, oh, they, they sent the proofs back. So that was the end of January. So then they got a what do they call it? A proof? Yeah. So after so once once everything's been submitted, you're just your stuff's on a schedule basically. I mean, you're, you're you become part of an assembly line. There are books that are ahead of you. And um, while everybody's going through your stuff, um, just to make sure everything's cool, they're they're putting out they have a production schedule to adhere to. So I would say by towards the end of February, we uh, my editor needed they had to go to to public to press on a, a catalog that'll be coming out this fall, and we were talking about the cover image. Now, I had specifically selected two images that I was really in love with, and they were two images that I had I bought at the Ministry of Culture in Spain. Um, and they're both pretty pretty provocative images. And I, I, I went to close friends like Eric, and I said, which do you prefer? And we had these discussions. And everybody, not everybody, my friend Ted still went with the, the other one. But we all agreed that the cover of the book should be this one particular still if it was pulled off correctly. Um, and this was the next major phase was what's the cover of the book going to look like because they had to go to um, publication with the catalog. Mm-hmm. And um, it's sort of the first ball to get to get everything rolling, first pin to drop. So I got on the phone with him. He, we had to talk about it. And he told me which one he liked better. And I told him which one I liked better. Um, and then about a week went by and we got on the phone. And he said, well, I had to make an executive decision because it's going. I had, I had, to, I had, to, I had to get it into a template and I had to design the cover and get it for pub, you know uh, uh, the ca- uh, excuse me what catalog. Uh, catalog, 
And I said, which one did you go with? And he goes, I went with the one that you wanted. And I said, excellent, because I, I, that's the one that I wanted. But in the interim, you may recall, Eric, I, we had agreed that the other one would be fine if they sort of like cropped it right and everything like that. So I, I got my wish. And of the two images, this one is the more is the, the better. And yet it was a perfect world because the other image is used as the frontispiece for the book. So I, I, it was a win, total win-win. So you've got the frontispiece is the B selection and the cover is the A. And it's a striking cover. I mean, everybody has told me who's seen the book that it's a really handsome, you know, handsome book. Yeah, and I will, I will put, a, uh, I'll put an image on the show notes for this at ericmarshall.net uh, slash wet. And I'll also put a link to... Uh, to the probably the Amazon um, link for it if people want to buy it, but it's it's a gorgeous cover and it kind of the image online doesn't really do it justice because it actually wraps around the book. It's a really gorgeous book and it wraps around a little bit. It's it's, it's really well done. It's a, it's a hard cover. It's um, I, I really like just from a design standpoint um, from the cover and the images inside. It's 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 really really nice. So they, they got that settled and they sent you the um, uncorrected proof. Is that what they call yeah, it? Yeah. So okay. flash forward. Let's see. I would say that. Um, yeah. In March, so about a month after all that, came the the galleys, you know, the uncorrected proofs. And this is your last opportunity to fix stuff. Um, uh, so the proofreader had gone through it. The proofreader gave their queries back to me. I was really lucky because my proofreader queries were like seven. <laughs> I mean, that was it. Okay. And that's because of my, my dear friend Mark Miller, who the book is dedicated to because he passed away uh, in December of last year, uh, had had he would have me feed him chapters. I would send them down to him, and he had been a, he's an author himself on the subject, and he had been a, a high school English teacher for thirty two years, and so he went through my chapters and um, and would just clean up any sort of like uh, prose issues that he found in terms of grammar, and mechanics, and punctuation. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot because portions of the book had already been vetted through the sort of like a dissertation committee, you know, right. and then passed through multiple hands. But all the original new writing of which there's a lot in there. You have to weed out a tremendous amount of your dissertation stuff. That's just not going to make, it's not going to make the cut for a mainstream or mainstream slash academic audience. Um, it came back with very little corrections and they were all simple and implemented within five minutes, maybe 10, 10 minutes. You just go through and make the little fixes. And then I went through and I sent it also to my friend Ted and we went through and found, you know, we found numerous things. My, my, my proofreader, uh, co- uh, corrections back to the press was about two pages. Uh, so there was probably okay. 30 things, 30, 35 things. And, you know, for the listeners, we're talking about really minor things. Like, you, you know, like I have Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and Wolfman is one word on page 13 and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and Wolfman is two words on page 96. So <laughs> we're talking about like really, really minutia here. Uh, that that type of stuff that that only really really close really close attention is going to pull out. Um, so that's that's the type of proofing you're doing because the whole thing grammatically and uh, structurally is is totally sound. It's already passed through multiple hands, mm-hmm. my hands, the dissertation committee's hands. Uh, then be was rewritten. Then it was proof edited by uh, copy edited by my friend. Then it was copy edited by a professional. So after that, it's just the minutia. And I had a couple of weeks to go through that. They wanted they wanted me to do all that, and then write my author bio and generate an index by the end of April. Okay. Um, and tell tell us about the indexing process. 
Uh, well, I, I actually was able to do all that uh, ahead of time. Um, and so I got everything to them before it was due. Um, and a large part of that was, so indexing is a real pain in the ass. Um, it's not pleasant. It's, and they make software for it too. However, the software that Roman uses for its galleys is somewhat, I think, incompatible with certain softwares out there. You know, editing, excuse me, uh, indexing software is around 500 bucks to buy. But I found um, Textract, actually, uh, who's a, uh, some good, generates some good software. It's got a good reputation. They do a sort of what I call a Mission Impossible version where um, you can use it for one, <laughs> one book only and then it explodes. <laughs> um, it's, and, and so for one ISBN, you're all set. And I wanted to buy that because it was $79. It was the end of the semester. It was about April. You know, it was the last month. You got a heavy grading. And I'm like, oh, generating an index is going to be tough. But it, there was an incompatibility. So again, this stalwart friend of mine, uh, Ted, who's also an author, said, well, let me help you out with this. So basically, he he wound up basically like taking all the chapters and combining them and uh, into one massive central document. So all five chapters into one document. And then you alphabetize that document. And this is Ted's old-fashioned way of indexing. So all the A's, like A, the, you know, the word A and the word an and the word apple and, you know, at. And all, all the A's are going to be the first, you know, whatever, 15 pages. And then B's and C's. And, and you just basically scan each page and pull out the proper nouns, you know, and the nouns. Proper nouns and nouns. And, uh, you know, the actresses, the actors, the films, the places, locations, the studios, uh, you know, the subject area. You pull out the major stuff and you generate a, a major list. Uh, and then from that list, uh, basically, you you create another uh, a list um, for the publisher. And they have a very specific format in which you need to do that, which includes uh, some at symbols, you know. And then you go to the galley that they sent you, and then you match not the page, but the paragraph number. So chapter one, paragraph five. So one five is oh where this subject, gosh. this this appears, you know, where this name appears and stuff like that. So in the PDF, it's searchable. So you type in the, like Carol Lombard or something like that, and you get five five instances. And then you, on your master index list, then you you basically put Carol Lombard appears in chapter like one five, two two, and three three or something like that <laughs> for every damn... <laughs> It took two weeks, yeah, you know, and that's and that's about average to generate, you know. That was and that was working on it not all day every day, but like for chunks of time every day, you know, like substantial chunks of time. Yeah, I wanted you to tell that story because it just sounds. I mean, it just sounds hard, and and I just love that method. You know, it's just it's great. Ted's a genius. Yeah, yeah, Ted's a genius. Um, that it, it, yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. And then now we're in July, and and, and the book came out a couple a couple weeks ago. And so from fall of 13 to um, June of 15, uh, most of the time was spent writing. So that's actually pretty fast yeah, for an academic press. That's, that's actually fairly, fairly quick. Um, and luckily, your subject matter doesn't get old because you're talking about a particular historical period, right? So you don't have to worry about you know being timely or anything like that, um, you know, except for with the uh, – I guess the argument or the academic stuff, you know, which is, which is nice. Um, so that's good. And, you know, it's funny just as far as your subject matter, I don't know anything. I don't like, I mean, I'm not a big horror fan. 
and I don't know anything about Spanish horror, but I've read so many versions of this and and chapters that I feel like I know these movies, even though I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen. I, I, maybe I've, I don't know. If I've, seen, I've seen any of them in here, uh, but it's it's but it's one of those topics that no one has really written about substantially, you know, over over these years. So you've got yourself a nice a nice niche, um, which could be a good. A calling card for for a job for a potential position, um, which which you know maybe we could talk about that for a little while because I've talked on this podcast before about how um, the academic job market is it's kind of broken in a way the 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 academic system is broken in a certain way um, depending on the uh, depending on what your side you're on you know it, it's broken from the point of view of of scholars who who are looking for academic jobs I guess because there is a some people would call it a glut of PhDs um, but I think it's more a scarcity of positions and because of that over the years the uh, requirements this is especially true in literature and uh, and media studies I think um, humanities in general, I guess we could say. Um, there's such a scarcity of positions because a lot of the uh, a lot of the jobs are going to adjuncts, um, which are part-time workers instead of full-time professors. So it gets to the point where if you want to be considered for an interview at, at a major university or even, even a not major university, um, a lot of times you – if you don't have a book, if you don't have any publications, you're not getting an interview. But if you don't have a book, there's a chance you don't get an interview. And and even with a book, you know, I hear stories of people, people, people with one or two books who don't end up getting interviewed or at least don't end up getting jobs. So it's not even a, a thing. So the, the the burden of publishing now is on graduate students and, and um, I guess, unemployed recent graduates like us. Uh you know, in order to get a job, and I think that for you, you your your book is a project a project of passion as well, which I think got you through it in a way, right? Because you said you've um, you know you've decided to try to leave the the profession. Um, I don't really have a question here. I'm just <laughs> I'm just kind of riffing on that whole uh, that whole. In my case, Eric, getting the book under contract wound up hurting me more than helping me because at the institution where I was teaching. Uh, it was explained to me that that was seen as um, uh, making other scholars look unproductive and lazy that had been there for a long time and had no uh, desire or passion to publish. And of course, how does one measure one's place in the sort of like hemisphere of academia? It's one does measure it by one's output. Right. Um, there's really no other way to do it other than in the classroom. And that's what evaluations are for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you know, one measures one's uh, productivity to, and contributions to the scholarship, of the area by one's contributions to it. So uh, in my case, it wound up actually hurting me, uh, and and this is what I was told, and I and 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 I tend to believe it. Um, so sometimes um, being uh, aggressive is the wrong word. Just. Just setting a high standard for yourself, a high bar professionally, can backfire. And obviously, that's not, in, not just endemic to academia; it's any industry, right? I mean, if you're, if if anybody comes in and and is starting to sort of like change the status quo by doing things like that, you know, people might expect to see or like to see, it can ruffle feathers. It can cause problems. 
there's this piece that Eric and I show in our in our uh, yeah, com in our in our writing mass media writing course, and it's a it's a piece with Harlan Ellison, and Harlan once said, in typical Harlan Ellison fashion, that more or less the only reasons writers write is for posterity, and I remember the first time I I heard him say that I thought well that's just Harlan I mean we write for other reasons a composer composes for other reasons a sculptor sculpts for other reasons than just posterity uh, we're, we're compelled by some sort of burning desire in us and stuff whatever it may be or well you know I gotta say after having gone through this whole whole thing. <laughs> At the very end, at the finish line, I was like, damn it, Harlan might really be on to something here because what what the uh, feeling is, and I'm not talking about just sort of like publishing um, a book review or a chapter, but an actual book itself, right, which is sort of like this own self-contained capsule of you, um, long after you've left and died and moved on, you know, like oh, someone opens your book and you live again. You know, you just it's, it's this great thing. And you, it really does hit you, I think, after you've written a book that, that somewhere, some, somehow, uh, somewhere down the road, you live on in a, in, in a strange way. Yeah, I, I, I agree about the posterity thing. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons yeah. to write. You know, posterity is, I think, a major one. Um, you know, for some people in academia, like I said earlier, it's a lot of times it's in order to move up. Um, in various ways, and as you state, you know it, that can be a hindrance, and that, you know that has that probably reflects a certain insecurity, perhaps on a, on job committees and things like that. Um, you know, the reason is money, right? And unfortunately, with academic writing, I think there's yeah, it's it, those are mutually exclusive. Like it's very rare, I think, for. Um, you know, for a piece of academic writing to move you up professionally and translate into money from sales, at least, you know, it has other benefits um, a lot of times. So, so the posterity thing wins out, <laughs> right? Especially for you, because you have, like, like you said, you, this is something that you're passionate about, that you wanted to be out in the world, regardless of why, regardless of whether you get a job or you make any money off of it or whatever it is, you wanted this to be out there to contribute to this field of knowledge and to shed light on these um, obscure and forgotten films, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, in a sense, I look at the, the book not as any sort of relic of, of academic intentions, mm-hmm. but as a, um, a calling card to future and more you know, uh, prosperous times, I hope, as I, as I transition out of academia and, go, and continue to work in the industry, but just, just not teaching, basically. And that's my goal right now. And, and I think you know, having a book that you can just send people to uh, and a book that I'm proud of uh, is is uh, is a great calling card on top of your your resume and and your previous accomplishments and 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 not only that but just a lifelong dedication to and love affair with cinema is 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 pretty much evident to anybody who knows me knows that's that's you know that I kind of bleed cinema uh, it runs through my veins and <laughs> and uh, so obviously I'm hoping that this leads to things that I can't even quantify right now yeah. that it's just you know yeah. but they're bubbling out there yeah. And- I feel like that's true of, of a lot of things where you you don't know where things might lead you um, until until they lead you there. You know, I, I, my, my entire life, my entire life like that, you know, I mean, I did not know I'd have a podcast or, you know, or whatever it might be. And who knows where this will lead, if anywhere at all, you know, and and um, you just don't know until until it happens. Right. I remember the next morning after I had posted on my I created a Facebook community for the page, you know, to self promote. And um 
which which is has gotten a lot of uh, um, attention, which is very cool from the community. And uh, I remember the, the the next morning I'd gotten uh, notifications from France and Germany from journalists who were like, you know, can you can you get us in touch with um, you, the uh, person who's handling review copies because I have there's three three uh, German publications that would be interested in this and and in France they said here's the website where it's a, it's a devoted to you know intellectual books that are coming out and we want to review it and you know so it's like the very next morning talking about you never know where these uh, connect the dots things go the next morning i'm getting you know uh, like i said emails from france and germany saying wow this is fabulous we can't wait to get a copy and write about it you know yeah that's great you know and you landed a spot on the prestigious wet podcast (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's fantastic you know i'm I'm stuck in a in a weird situation as you know where you know i i kind of self-identify as a teacher and a writer kind of equally um maybe more writing these days i don't know probably pretty much equally i like both and i don't think they have to be tied together and i think that the um the emphasis on publishing in in the academic world i think is is actually hurting things to a large extent i think people are writing things they don't feel like writing they don't want to write they're writing in order to to get tenure um and you know maybe there are people who would rather teach than write it's it's i, I don't know i think it i think it hurts scholarship uh to a large extent um but on the other hand i don't care <laughs> because you know i i'm a writer and i don't mind writing but i i I do have this feeling I, I do want to do academic writing. I want to do intellectual writing um, more to the point. But when I sit down and think about writing a book, uh, an academic book, it, I I just think, why would I do that to myself? Like, why would I? You know, the the passion is not quite there for that type of writing right now. And I'm trying to find ways to to bridge the gap between creative and academic writing. But that's a whole different thing for a different podcast. But um but it's hard because like, because it's it's more instrumental, right? You write academic works in order to do something, you know, and um, I think there's a problem with the system, and I think it, you know, in, in your case, it did not. I mean, I think it can produce bad writing. In your case, it did not at all. Uh, but it's it's a strange situation, you know, where where you're you're doing it for something else, you right. know, for a position of power. It's 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 very weird. <laughs> Yeah, and and fortunately for me, like both objectives were um, achieved really because I got the press that I wanted, and I was also you know sort of like checking the box for um, advancing my career, uh, and and also was able to write in a tone and style with the amount of sort of like supporting visual you know, in the imagery in the book. It, it just all kind of just came together. Super, super, super well. Um, I mean, I couldn't be more pleased. And and again, I want I want to stress that like dealing with Roman was a dream. Um, my after you know at a certain point, your senior editor becomes less involved with the project. They've got I mean, they're the senior editor. They're a senior. They're they're important part, very important part of the company. And they've got much more important things to be moving on. Their their job is to initially sort of like. Uh, establish uh, the relationship, get the contract settled, and um, guide you basically into the airport. You know, land, <laughs> land, land you, and yeah. then 
then a lot of other people take over the baggage handlers and, the, <laughs> and like um you know my production editor you know darren was outstanding so his job was to deal with me with the galleys you know and then he had to coordinate with other people and and of course then there's there's marketing and pr and then royalties and uh, all these you know very and then there's review copies to be sent out and you have to do a very specific author questionnaire which is a large document hmm. where you have to provide all sorts of information about your book and including the places where you'd like to see it reviewed in addition to other places that they typically deal with. So if there's, you know, um, particular publications, you know, apart from like library journal and stuff like that, but like, you know, uh, podcasts, for example, or um, magazines, uh, webzines, you know, e-zines, whatever. I mean, basically places where you think you're going to get a favorable review. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, I mean, so yeah, I can't stress enough how the the relationship you establish with your publisher is really important, and it's it's very important not to be a, a, a sort of a, a prima donna about things and expect any sort of uh, special treatment. It just I I approach things to be very uh, as as to be hum- as humble as possible, mm-hmm. but also confident in my work mm-hmm. uh, and um, very flexible. And that is exactly what, you know, in, in, endears an author to them. And then they wind up actually embracing and helping you because they don't always get that. You know, it's not always that way. Sometimes they get authors who are very uh, um, picky or um, stubborn about certain things. Mm-hmm. It's their work and so on and so forth. Um, so the, the, the further you go into sort of ingratiating yourself, uh, the, the better you are off. And, and, and it paid off beautifully with my book because they treated me so well. Um, and I treated them very well. As for the market, the job, the job market you mentioned earlier, um, wow, that's really difficult. I'm in a position this fall to go on the market and uh, stronger than I've ever been. Yeah. Uh, it's be, I'm starting my eleventh uh, year of teaching, and uh, have you know several publications, including a book under my belt, conferences, course design, international exposure, uh, dealing with um, you know a, a lot of extracurricular things related to film, and I don't, I don't think I'm going to do it. You know, I, I the writing that I'm seeing on the wall in academia writ large is the signs I'm seeing are really disturbing. And I think if I'm going to make a change in my life, it probably needs to be now. I think there's a short, I've got a window, you know, depending on how old I am, where I can make a lateral change and still work in the same field, but completely outside of academia or or tangentially related to academia, uh, but not teaching, not pursuing a tenure track, because, and I'm sure some listeners out there who are familiar with academia and keep up with current events, like things that have been going on in Northwestern or just the other day with uh, LSU, I'm, I'm reading all sorts of really disturbing signs coming down the pike, uh, not only with the way that universities have been run in terms of contingent faculty and the 75% that, 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 of, of faculty that are made up of contingent faculty, but the way and systematically we're we're being kind of uh, boxed in what we can say and what we can do, when obviously all along our intentions have been to create uh, a very civic uh, and intelligent and critically minded electorate <laughs> to make for a better society, 
and um, now our, I think we're being second guessed a lot. Uh, fortunately, I'm I'm not myself. Uh, I have not experienced this, but I'm seeing this. Um, I mean, I'm not experiencing that, but um, I am in my 11th year as an adjunct, and so the the returning profits from all of this, um, there are none. Yeah. You know, I'm uh, like you and probably a lot of other PhDs. I'm just in debt. I'm not even really treading water right now. Mm -hmm. So I think the time is now for me to move on and, and carve out, you know, for the second half of my life, uh, a real stable and happy uh, environment. Yeah, and I think that's a, a growing trend. You know, there's the uh, uh, a lot of people are familiar with the alt ac movement, alternate alternate academic, where it's like tangential, where you're you're maybe not teaching, maybe you're working in a library or a media center, um, or the post ac you know movement, where it's okay, what do I do now that I have this PhD, um, and I I can't find a job, or I found out that I don't want to work do this anymore because ten years getting eroded, jobs are hard to find. Um, you know, you keep hearing about lawsuits being brought against professors for um, what seem to be pretty frivolous things. Sometimes uh, the, re the revenge motivated. You know, it's all very, uh, I guess, disheartening in, in a certain way and, and scary. You know, even even tenured faculty are more and more precarious, um, and you know, adjunct faculty are precarious by nature, by the very definition of the of the job. You know, and, and um, and I've talked about this on this podcast before. You can go back to the, the previous two episodes um, of this podcast, 33 and 34, or my conversation with Alan Trevithick, or <laughs> I'm sure there are others I'm not thinking about right now. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange crisis, you know, because academic freedom seems to be slowly eroding to to a large extent um and i can i can put links in those show notes or people can hit me up on twitter at emarsh or wherever to um you know to talk about this i have i <laughs> i never tire of talking about these things for some reason uh so yeah it's, it's an interesting decision you know it's a decision that i haven't made i haven't made the same decision as you um in terms of leaving and i'm not even in as strong a position as you are because i don't have a, a, a academic book um under contract or or otherwise, you know. Um, but I still hold out, I don't know, I don't know if it's hope, or I just hold out the possibility of, of landing a tenure-track job or, you know, getting something something around here. But I'm also entertaining the idea of not doing that. I, I just kind of keep my options, I guess, open, which is, which is what a lot of people... Um, in academia with PhDs have to do. You have to, you know, keep keep your options open. But it does seem like things are getting worse and not better, especially for uh, junior faculty. Well, I'm... Uh, I haven't decided 100% that I'm not going to throw my, you know, hat into the ring in the fall. I can say that I'm leaning that way because... I'm all too aware of the process and what it takes to go through. I've served on, obviously, job search committees, as have you. We know the process. We've been on both ends of it. And it's a long process. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with academia, uh, to apply for the job you know, uh, at, the, at the bank or at Comcast or <laughs> you know, at, at the uh, town charter, you, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a post you apply they fill it eventually. Pretty right. cool, you know. Like in academia, this is a long, laborious um, process that takes eight eight months of your life, really, from from the time that you're looking in the summer to the time you find out what's going on in the late winter, early spring. It's you know, it's you're it's blind. You're, you're rolling the die, and you're hoping that something's going to connect. You send out your 
your packets, you know, to the universities um, and send them whatever they want, and then just keep your fingers crossed that you you get you make it to the 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 phone interview phase, you know, which is usually the top, basically ten, depending on mm-hmm. the yeah. university, and you know. Um, Time is our most precious resource, and uh, you know I'll be 45 in a couple of months, and in many ways uh, my life is half over or more than half over. And I don't mm-hmm. say that to be uh, sardonic, you know, like like uh, gloomy or anything here. Right, I mean, right. but it, I just say it as a matter of fact that 90 is double that. So I mean, we're, we're, we're <laughs> simple I, math. Simple math, and <laughs> and I'm just I I want to take the time to ensure that before it's all doctor's appointments that I'm. You know, I'm taking care of myself. I'm getting paid uh, for my services, and then I'm enjoying life because that's what we're ultimately all here to do: is in, in make the most of the time that we have. That being said, I'm not sure that in the fall pursuing another tenure track position, another five, six years, hoping that I please enough people, as the goal goalpost keeps getting changed on us year yeah. after year. Uh, with the same seven points, or actually maybe even less than seven. You know, it's like not only is the game, yeah, I was gonna say not only is the uh, the goalpost changing on us, but like it's not even the standard touchdown points anymore. It's like it's like the the goalpost is changing for maybe three or four points as opposed to six plus one. So I, I if if I need to, you know, your head overthinks things, your heart com- totally screws things up. But if your gut says the truth, my gut is saying leave. And I think that's probably where I'm at. And, and there you go. Now, that said, you are talking about writing another book, right? Yes. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you're thinking about writing another book. So I'm wondering, like, let's say postpartum. Postpartum. <laughs> let's say, uh, like, you don't know, you don't know what you're going to be doing in six months or a year. Um, it, really, you don't, right? Uh, and you're open to a lot of things, and you're applying to a lot of different things. But writing a book is in your plan yeah. in the near future, in the next several years, yeah. I would say, right? Um, so I'm wondering how you – this is pure guesswork, but how do you envision writing, um, especially about cinema, how, how do you envision that working into your career or into your life? Yeah, well, uh, in terms of the – once you do finish a book, you're kind of like, oh, my God, thank God that's over with. That was – it's a birthing process, you know. Uh, not that, not that as a, as a male, I have any idea what's involved with with childbirth, except extraordinary pain. But like, this, it is. A, I mean, like somebody asked me the other day, "When did this all start for you, this book?" Mm. And I said, "You mean like from inception?" Huh. And they said, "Yeah." And I said, "Jeez." I said, "I was sitting in my advisor's office in the fall of 2006 when I came up with the idea for the." I'd already actually. I mean, when I mentioned the idea, I'd already come up with the idea, and that's when my advisor said, "Okay, you know, I think that's a winner. You should pursue it." Uh, so that's what eight, nine, nine years. Yeah. So um, nine years, you know. And of course, I mean, obviously, I was getting a PhD and teaching full time and doing all sorts of other stuff in, in the interim. Um, but yeah, it was nine years. So it was a long gestation period there, in keeping with the childbirth analogy, but. Um, for me, you, you think you're done. I don't want to, I'm done with this. It was a long, laborious process, you know, but it doesn't take long for that to, to keep pushing the childbirth, the postpartum to set in. And, and uh, you start thinking about, I, have I got any more to say? 
and I do. There's another topic that I'd really like to fully explore, and I did with that chapter I wrote after I finished the book. I kind of like dipped my toe into the water. And this is also a, an area that's sort of sa- sorely lacking in in a, uh, uh, in a, in a uh, single volume driven topic. So it would require me to do to get a grant or to get some money to go do some research in, in Germany, particularly at the National Film Archives in Berlin. And also, just like I did with with Spain, set up interviews with people who were in front of and behind the camera. Um, so it's going to require that sort of logistic uh, and, and financial um, component to it. That's that's unavoidable. I mean, but that's also the best part when you get your hands dirty and, and you go and you because it complete. If I had written this book without going to Spain, well, I I mean, obviously, I should tell listeners I have a long love affair with Spain. I've been going there since I was two, but I not to necessarily research this. Had I not gone there to do research specifically on this topic, you know, the the project wouldn't have been nearly as enriched. There was no question. Uh, it would have been almost a tourist uh, writing about it, you know, but to, to sort of get your hands dirty really gives you a great perspective. So that's how I would propose doing it again. And let's say I was working at a job where I had, uh, you know, it was a, a certain amount of time off every year. I, yeah, I would build it into, I would if it was a film-related job, I would actually try and get money from my employer or get an advance from a publisher or something along those lines to to facilitate some of that travel and offset some of the expenses um but uh obviously the best conduit for doing that is when you're when you're on a tenure track or you're tenured it's very simple you you put together a research proposal for a a sabbatical you take a semester off you get some grant money you go do your stuff you come back you publish under the banner of your department and university it's a done deal i don't know you know if i'm not pursuing academia that's not a possibility anymore so Yeah, that's a, that's a tough thing because if you're not part of an institution, there's a lot. Of, there are a lot of things that that go away. Um, you know, in sabbaticals, <laughs> um, a certain amount of travel funding. You know, things like that. Um, that's that's for sure. But you know, but you see it as part of just your. It sounds to me like you you want to write like a, this this uh, forthcoming book. <laughs> I call it forthcoming already because uh, I, I know you're going to do it. Uh, book about uh, about the German films. Like I see this as you just wanting to explore the topic, but also shed light on um, on something for other cinephiles. You know, it's not when you write an academic book, you're writing for other academics. Mm-hmm. Your your audience for for a strictly academic book is maybe a dozen people. <laughs> you know, if you're lucky, someone adopts it <laughs> for a class, and you get thirty other people reading it or whatever. It might be you know graduate students or something. But you know, I think most. A lot of academic books go unread. Um, there's a staggering uh, statistic, and I don't remember. I'll dig it up at some point about how many books in a library never get checked out. You know, it, it, it's it. Bleh. But what you're doing is different than that because your book is not strictly academic. This book and your next book probably won't be either. It's rigorous. It's academically rigorous, but it's researched. Um, you know, on on site, I guess you could say, um, unlike unlike some. And you um, and you you know other cinephiles can read this yeah. and understand you know most of it and and you're very kind of I don't want to say encyclopedic but you really put a lot you treat a lot of films in this right you talk about a lot of films um, and make and make interesting connections and arguments um, but you're you're doing it for a broader audience I think as well and I think that's that's 
probably your goal in writing the next thing, like staying open to academia, but also knowing that you're doing it for for this ideal reader as somebody who like really loves film and wants to know more about international cinema, right? Oh, big time. You know, there's a community. I mean, I've been a part of this community my whole life of, of the fa- and the fandom really of, of mm-hmm. in particular horror movies, sci-fi, fantasy, exploitation, cult, sci- you know, fantasy, that, that, that whole realm of cinema is, um, to, to paraphrase Woody Allen in, in, uh, in what's, uh, what's new tiger lily is, uh, my various breads and, you know, bread, but, 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 violence is my bread and, 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 and sex is my butter. No, but <laughs> violence is my various breads and butters, you know? So, I mean, yeah, that they are my, my, my various breads and butters. Um, uh. and, and <laughs> so, Within like after setting up that Facebook page, you know, I got to 300 likes like really quickly, and that's because I belonged to certain groups and and said, hey everybody, I'm I'm proud to announce my uh, my forthcoming book, and and then I'm like, oh, I'm proud to announce the book is out, you know, and like and and the response has been overwhelmingly uh, positive. In fact, you know, it has a heavy price point because uh, it's an first of all, it's an academic book. And secondly, it's it's target, you know, uh, um, buyer for the first year of its life are libraries. Libraries buy these buy, buy this for film reference, like, you know. So I mean, naturally, the publisher has the highest price point during that first year. So uh, it's already an academic book, so it's got a higher price point. Then it's with the library. So. Uh, but to offset this, um, the website's offering a 35% off cover right now. So that brings the book down to like 48 bucks. And holy cow, did everybody jump on that? Because it was just a little bit out of their, their comfort zone at 75, um, which is not unrealistic for an academic press. I mean, it's cheaper than a textbook, uh, an academic press, or that, you know, that's being targeted to libraries. But as soon as they, they put the sale up at 35% off, all sorts of people were like bought, sold, bingo. Like they're like you know just order, just order. I was getting like little, conf- I was getting uh, screen caps of people who had actually bought it and they showed it to me in their checkout and their cart, you know. And That's I'm like, cool. yeah. So I mean, because they're they're offering it for twenty five dollars cheaper than Amazon right now. So and you know and that's at Roman.com. In fact, Eric might be so good as to include a link to it because so, it is thirty five percent off. Yeah, I might do that. No, definitely I will do that. Um, yeah, I'll put a link to the book on uh, on Amazon and to and at Roman. Um, the other thing I'm going to put a link to is um, this uh, podcast that you were on last year. Um, I don't remember the name of it. Do you? Oh, the Cinephiles. Yeah, that's uh, Eric Cohen and Eddie Samuelson in New York. Okay, so yeah, the cinephiles, going back to this idea of having this community around yep. this sort of thing, where Nick was on this podcast, and it's he does a really good job. They're drinking cocktails on a old roof, old-fashioned. Yeah. Eric, Eric's a hell of a bartender. <laughs> Not me. Um, maybe someday, but the other Eric the, of, this, of this podcast. <laughs> and um, it's a really great listen, because if you, if you have... If you're at the end of this podcast, you've been listening for maybe an hour now, and you maybe you still don't know anything about Spanish horror cinema because we haven't really talked too much about it. Um, I'll, I'll link you to that, and Nick does a great job of explaining um, a lot of the things that are going on in the Franco period with with Spanish cinema um, while drinking old fashions on a roof. So I'll link to that too <laughs> in Brooklyn. <laughs> So I'll link I'll link to that as well so that people can listen to that and then um, you know maybe figure out why this is such a big deal um, for this for this book. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, and that's part of the community. Yeah, I mean Eddie, 
Eddie and Eric uh, run the Cinephiles. They also do a lot of supplementary uh, Blu-ray and DVD, um, uh, like expository documentaries. They interview people. Eddie is uh, the pre- like the president and co-founder of AV Maniacs, which is this massive forum. And he's good friends with my good friend, Don, Don May Jr. Of, uh, of Synapse Films. And everything's connected. And uh, it, that's kind of the beauty of this industry is that uh, everybody's connected. Everybody's passionate about the same things. And, you know, and the Internet really helps facilitate all this, you know, in, in, in the best possible way. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun. I was in New York for a conference uh, in, in um, uh, lower Manhattan, Lower East Side at NYU. And I was going out to visit Eddie frequently and he was coming in to see me. And we just decided to, like, do one of their video casts. Uh, on uh, on their on Eddie's new place in uh, Brooklyn and had a blast. So yeah, and it's a lot of fun. It's very it's it's a short watch and definitely would bring the non specialist into the world real easy. Yeah, which is great because I'm definitely you know, any middle fashions. Yeah, which is great because I like I said I'm a film guy obviously, but um, but I don't know anything about that genre. So it's it's, it's nice. So good. Um, any parting words? I don't really have. <laughs> I don't know how to wrap this up exactly. I guess if 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 I was going to wrap it up, I would say that um, maybe there's advice that I could impart to anybody who's on the fence right now about like suppose you're in your second year and your tenure track and you've been saddled with a lot of um, committee work, you know, a lot of service, a lot of um, advising, um, a lot of teaching. And when you don't know there's room for your own writing, um, the writing a book is a, a huge commitment. I, I almost um, naively thought that, well, you've got the dissertation, so that's that's going to be a great help. And it was a great help, but also you you know when you're doing a monograph, you got to delete roughly half of that content, which is what I wound up doing. Uh, I had to p- immediately pitch nearly 50% of the dissertation. I kept 50, but then rewrote a large portion of that 50, you know, like if you uh, maybe 10 to 15% of every paragraph had modified language in it. And then there was 50% original new material. Um, where I was blessed was the first chapter of the dissertation was sort of a history chapter. And I was able to retain a lot of that without changing it because it was written in a very sort of authoritative hist- his, you know, historiography sort of methodology. Um, so my, my advice would be don't, you know, obviously if you haven't done it before and you're just talking to me right now, my advice is that it's, it's going to be a tremendous amount of, of effort and energy. I'm a single man. I don't have a, uh, you know, wife or kids. Uh, not by design, but um, I was therefore able to allocate a lot of time and energy and resources to this, and it still took a hell of a lot of work to finish it up. And there's a reason not everybody is out there publishing a book all the time, and that's because just like getting your PhD, it requires a hell of a lot of work. But it's worth it, I think, in the end. Yeah, but it's worth it in the end. Is the is the uh, is the bottom line, I guess, if you're if you're in that position. Um, I think our advice to people thinking about grad school would be a little different. That would be different. If you're already on the tenure track, yeah. And I think listeners can figure out what that advice would be, um, I, I imagine. So, Well, great. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on to the podcast, Nick. Well, thanks for having me on, Eric. Yeah, it's been it's been great. Uh, you can find show notes for this at ericmarshall.net slash wet. This is episode number 35, Nick Schlegel. 
Um, you can follow me on Twitter at emarsh or the podcast at wet podcast. Do you have a place where people can find you? Sure. I'm uh, I maintain uh, an online website called drnick.net, D O C T O R N I C K, drnick.net and that's sort of my online professional portfolio is there. All every, everything. Excellent. And people can find your social media if need be right there. there. Great. drnick.net. And uh, once again, thanks for coming on and thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.